right, just a couple of announcements before we get started. Just a reminder that a week from this Saturday, we'll have our men's prayer breakfast at 7.30 in the morning, followed by our deacons meeting, and encourage the, uh, some of the young men who haven't been in attendance to come. Also, that night, uh, we have a family night, and we'll be showing the film uh, Railway Children. That'll be preceded by sort of a potluck dinner, so sign up for what you can bring, and we'll have a good time getting to know each other a little better, and then have a good have a film. Also, uh, Camp is coming up on July 14th to 20th, and then July 22nd to 24th is our Vacation Bible School. Regarding Vacation Bible School and Prep School, check with Mark Friedrich if you would like to help out. Also, uh, the information on tours coming up are on the Dean Bible Ministries website. One of the things we need to be aware of is just prayer. Right now it seems like a number of pastors are dealing with some serious health problems. John Page, who is pastoring a church in uh, Medford, Oregon, had a mini-stroke last week, and he's having difficulty using his right hand. Of course, we all know about uh, Pastor Bruce Baker, who has now uh, fully retired from Washington, Washington County Bible Church, but we need to be in prayer for him and uh, his health and strength as he continues to battle ALS. Todd Kennedy, who is retired now, I believe, is he fully retired, Jim? Semi. Waiting for Jeremy Thomas, who has taken that position, to sell his place in Fredericksburg. But uh, Todd is continuing to fight some uh, number of health problems, and his voice is completely shot now and completely gone. So we need to uh, pray for Todd. And, of course, we need to continue to pray for Pastor Dan Ingram. Dan is... um, was discharged from the hospital yesterday following a biopsy. Now, a biopsy for a lot of things isn't that big a deal, but a biopsy on a tumor in your brain is a big deal. That is uh, virtually brain surgery, and so he's uh, not supposed to do anything for at least a month, and he's got to go through recovery, and then they'll put him on various regimen in treating the cancer once they get the results from the biopsy, which will be in a couple of weeks. So we need to pray for these uh, these men, many of whom have been great stalwarts of the faith, teaching the word for uh, decades, and yet we have very few men standing by who are prepared to follow in their footsteps. So we need to be in prayer for that as well. We continually pray for God to raise up men who are interested in learning the word, uh, getting involved in this. Uh, We had a great testimony from J.T. Ford the other night. The age to make a decision and to prepare is really early. It's in your teens. The longer you wait, the less effective, I believe, you will be as a pastor. And I have had one pastor, Dan Ingram, who has told me this many times, that because he, he he had been accepted at Dallas Seminary in 1973, but he wanted to serve his country in the Marine Corps, which is fabulous. But four years turned into 28 years. And um, he constantly tells me, he says, I will never know what you know because I spent all those years in the Marine Corps instead of studying the Word of God and studying theology. And many people fail to realize how important it is to get these things into their soul and to learn these skills and to begin studying because you don't really reach your efficiency as a pastor, your knowledge base as a skill, until about 20 years. I remember when Charlie Clough said after five years, he said, I think I'm first beginning to think and see what I'm doing here. And then at 10 years, he said, I don't think I knew anything the first 10 years, and now I'm really getting into it. And it's really almost 20 years to build that that well, as Jim and Phyllis are here tonight, to build that well uh, deep and wide so that uh, we have that reservoir of knowledge. And that just takes takes time. And if you don't start getting serious about the Word and going into ministry until you're in your mid to late 40s, then by the time you get 20 years in, it's just about time to, 
to retire when you're just about to reach your peak. So we need to pray for God to raise up men who are ready to dedicate their lives to a life of study and preparation to be used by him and to serve him in a pulpit ministry. Before we begin tonight, let's have a few moments of silent prayer. We need to be spiritually prepared to study the Word. Scripture says we walk by the Spirit. Walking is always just a metaphor for our lifestyle and that we are to live by means of the Holy Spirit, but sometimes we're living by our sin nature. And Paul uses a couple of different phrases to describe this, by means of the Spirit and according to the Spirit. And so when we sin, that is that close intimacy with God is broken, that rapport is breached, and we're no longer enjoying that fellowship with God. To recover, we confess sin, which simply means to admit or acknowledge our sin, and he will forgive us of those sins, and he's faithful and just to cleanse us from all other sins. So we'll begin with a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, it's such a wonderful privilege we have in freedom to come together to study your word, to freely proclaim the truth of your word, to dig deeply into it, to discover the tremendous uh, wealth of your grace that is described there, to learn how this applies to us, how it transforms our thinking, how it builds a wisdom in our soul that we may live a life that is spiritually skillful, that counts for eternity. Father, we pray for these men I've mentioned already this this evening, these pastors, their health challenges. We pray that you would strengthen them, that they might be uh, great testimonies to their congregations of how to face these these tests and trials as they as they mature and grow older. And Father, we pray for young men, men like uh, Jeremy and David Roseland and Brad uh, Maston, many others who have taken the time to start young and to study your word, learn your word, that they may build a foundation for a lifetime of, of ministry and how important that is for as so many in the baby boom generation are aging and reaching a time when they will be stepping down from their teaching ministries we look and see very few who are have really captured the vision of a teaching ministry and are prepared to go forward with that. Father, tonight as we study your word, we pray that we might be uh, refreshed by our time in your word, that we might be strengthened and encouraged understanding these uh, vital truths that strengthen our soul and protect our soul. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Second Peter, and we're still in Second Peter 1.1, and tonight we should get to the point where we begin to talk about the emphasis here on the deity of Christ. And I believe that it is no uh, coincidence, it is not just a matter of, of literary uh, introduction, that Peter says what he says at the very beginning of this epistle. He is writing this epistle, as we have seen, in order to warn his recipients of the coming apostasy, the fake teachers that are going to show up teaching uh, fake doctrine, fake theology, and are going to lead the church astray. And this is very important to warn them. And as we look at the how Scripture is laid out, we have a parallel epistle from Jude, the half-brother of the humanity of our Lord, and he wrote to his audience telling them what they should do because by his time, just a few years later, those fake teachers have really come on the scene. Now, we don't know exactly what their fake teaching was comprised of, what issues they were challenging, but we can make a pretty fair guess. They were attacking the authority of the apostles. This is seen also through many of Paul's epistles, how he was attacked by those who made fake claims to be apostles. 
and challenged his authority. This is always a foundational issue that we see in the scripture. So they are uh, challenging the authority of the apostles, which is really a challenge to the authority of the scripture. That is why for the last uh, 200 years, we have seen a tremendous rise in academia attacking the legitimacy, the accuracy, the inerrancy and infallibility of Scripture. The battle lines always seem to be drawn at that point. And the question they ask is the same question that Satan asked, that the serpent asked of Eve in the Garden of Eden, has God really said? And so it's no coincidence that when Peter opens up his epistle, he emphasizes two things as we've seen, that he is a bondservant or a slave of and also an apostle of Jesus Christ. And we looked at these words, focusing on their significance, and as a doulos, he is one who represents his master. And so those who refute him, those who attack him, those who reject what he teaches are not just rejecting what he says, they are rejecting his master. And so that is embedded in that as well as the second term, apostle. Now, by emphasizing doulos first, he's emphasizing an aspect of his relationship to God that is true for every one of us. I went through the passages in Romans 6 talking about how we are now bondservants. We are doulos or douloi is the plural douloi of righteousness, but we live as if we are still the douloi, the slaves of our sin nature. So we are to reckon ourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God and serving him in righteousness. So I believe it's important that as we look at this structure, that it's no coincidence that Peter begins this way. He doesn't, he doesn't start off with uh, Peter and, uh, and a greeting to those in grace and truth, which comes in the second verse. But he's emphasizing his authority, just as he did in the first epistle, because uh, the matter of authority is so important in the Christian life. And if you go out into academia today, whether it is at the seminary level or whether it is at the secular school or even the so-called Christian schools, that this is a major battle among the faculty in many uh, fine institutions that have been solid in the past. And these battles are kept so often from the folks who sacrificially give to support these schools and these institutions, but they have not always held firm ground. I remember a few students when I was in the THM program in the late 70s at Dallas Seminary, Uh, One of them was Randy Price. Randy and some others of his class, after they graduated, went to Israel uh, to study at the Hebrew University. And I think Randy may have been the only one who maintained his doctrinal purity and theological orthodoxy during that time. And I know of one of those men who was connected by marriage to one of the more influential men on the board of Dallas Seminary. And when he came back, he was uh, appointed to a faculty position at the seminary. But he denied Mosaic authorship. He denied a number of fundamental Old Testament claims. And it was a couple of years before he was let go. And it wasn't for a theological reason. It was for some ethical reason. And this is not uncommon in institutions not to take a stand. And and there have been others that have been bulwarks of orthodoxy that have allowed faculty members under the rubric of academic freedom to go outside the bounds of orthodoxy. And then they are not reined in because too often schools are under uh, certain guidance because they have sought, uh, sought, sought accreditation from the secular world, which is a real pressure. It's a real danger. It seems to be something positive that people look for. At Schaefer, we often get calls, are you accredited? And the answer is no, we're not, because we're not going to play the secular game. 
And so they go somewhere else because they want to be a chaplain. They want to be something else. And that's a way that the world puts pressure on the church to conform to the world and not to stay firm to the word of God. So this is something that has happened. And so in every generation or two, we have to go back and rebuild the foundations for training clergy uh, to be able to teach our coming generations. And so it's always an issue of authority. We've seen and heard a lot recently about the battle over inerrancy of Scripture. We thought that battle had been won and put to rest in the 70s with the many meetings that took place that culminated in the Chicago Statement of Inerrancy. But yet, as we learned from David Farnell at the Chafer Conference about three years ago, that no, this is rearing its head again, and it is a problem on almost, at almost every significant evangelical campus. There are men who are buying into positions, positions related to historical criticism of the text, and other philosophical positions that undermine the inerrancy of Scripture. And it always comes down to this issue of authority. So that's where Peter starts. We then looked, spent a week or two, actually, on the doctrine of apostleship. What does the Bible teach about apostleship? And we saw that it was used in two different ways. It was used to describe those who were commissioned directly by the Lord Jesus Christ to a specific mission. And I pointed out it's always important when you look at those who were called apostles in the early church, as well as the, I mean, in the scriptures, that weren't part of the Twelve, as well as those that are mentioned in the late first century and into the second century as apostles, to discern who commissions them and to what were they commissioned. Because the terms applied to people like Barnabas and Junius and some others in the New Testament were those who are commissioned by a local church, and they are sent out as missionaries, basically. But that lowercase term apostle is not to be confused with the unique and distinct role of the 11. Sometimes uh, somebody asked me last week, well, first it's 11, then it's 12. Well, you've got to remember there were 12. Then Judas failed, and there's really 11 of the original 12 that are left. And then Paul becomes saved. And then when you get to... uh, get to Revelation and you talk about the future New Jerusalem and the foundation of the 12 apostles, the question is, well, does that include Matthias or not? And therein lies an interesting question, and people go back and forth on that uh, a lot. And I believe that, that when we look at who those 12 are, that it will be Paul, whose name is there, not Matthias's. But that doesn't mean that he didn't have a role, but he just drops out of sight, of course, after Acts chapter 2. But the apostleship, uppercase A, the office and spiritual gift of apostle combined were, along with the New Testament prophets, the foundation of the church. It is the revelation that is given to them, according to Paul in, in Ephesians 3, 1 through 6, It's not just Paul who's appointed to be an apostle to the Gentiles, but he says this mystery doctrine was also revealed to the other apostles and prophets. So the idea that Paul is unique and distinctively the apostle of grace is a a complete misrepresentation of Scripture. But the gift and office of apostle was limited They had to be eyewitnesses of Christ's teaching. They had to be eyewitnesses of the resurrection of Christ, and they had to have been directly commissioned by Jesus Christ to be one of those foundational apostles. So we studied through 1 Corinthians 13, uh, 8 to 13, demonstrating that, yes, indeed, there are some gifts that are not for the entire church age, but were just for the very beginning to to establish the church. So it's always about authority, though, when apostleship is emphasized, and that's going to be important in this epistle as a warning that false teachers are coming. That means by attributing 
that adjective false to them, there has to be true teachers. Whenever anybody says something is wrong, that means they have some sort of standard. Maybe they haven't thought about it, but they have some sort of standard that that tells them what is right. And so when you have false teachers, fake teachers, there has to be true teachers. There has to be those that are teaching the truth. And so how do we discern that? And we discern that because we go to that which was taught by the apostles. And the phrase that will describe that body of doctrine, that content taught by the apostles, is going to be the the word, uh, the faith, that we have down in um, the second half of that verse, that we have obtained or received like precious faith. And here... In the Greek, this is a word, the word faith here is without the article. It has the article in a parallel passage in Jude chapter, uh, Jude verse 3, which we'll look at in a minute. But here it is without the article, and that emphasizes the quality, the quality of the doctrine, the quality of the content. And so it is this content that is delivered once for all to the saints, as Jude puts it. It is this body of truth that comes from the foundation of the apostles and prophets that becomes the standard, the criteria, that becomes the benchmark for determining what is true and what is false. And so rather than addressing this epistle to a specific geographical location, he addresses it in terms of who these people are, in terms of their spiritual relationship to the Lord. He will state something when he comes to chapter 3, verse 1, where he says, I now write to you this second epistle, which tells us that he is writing to the same audience that he wrote the first epistle to. He is addressing them as, and they are Jewish background believers. So, but here he emphasizes the spiritual quality of their nature. He says to those who have obtained like precious faith with us. Who's the us? The us is the body of apostles. It is their faith. It is that content of faith that is truly apostolic. It was taught. It was written down. It was proclaimed by the apostles. And then he says it's by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, an extremely significant statement that in the Greek teaches the deity of Christ, that he is both God and Savior. That's talking about one person here, and God and Savior become equivalent. We'll get into that. So the first line, the verb here is a participle, to those who have obtained like precious faith. Now, this word is an unusual word. It's not a word like dekomai, which simply means to receive. It's not a word that indicates acceptance of something. It has a more significant nuance to it. It has the idea, and it's only used a couple of other places in the New Testament, and it has the core sense in extra-biblical literature of receiving something by appointment uh, by God or by lot, somebody casting lots in order to receive something. And so here, because of the content, uh, context, we would say it's to those who have uh, received from God. What I put down here in the bottom of the box, I would uh, expand that translation so that it makes uh, more sense, to those who have received something from God. That emphasizes the fact that it, since it is a passive participle, that they're receiving the action of the verb and not uh, part of giving the action of the verb. They're receiving something. God is giving this body of truth. This That's what faith means. It's not the act of believing, but often the uh, noun refers to the body of truth, that which is believed that which is accepted as true. And we often use it that way ourselves. We may talk about uh, the Christian faith as opposed to the Islamic faith 
We may talk about the Roman Catholic faith as opposed to the Protestant faith. And in those kinds of statements, we're talking about a body of beliefs. And so that refers to the the doctrine, the teaching that is held by that group of people. So here we have a body of truth that is given to us, and we know that it comes to us through the apostles and the prophets. And so he's writing to them because they, as believers, have received this uh, precious faith, and it's like precious faith. It is the same as that which the apostles hold. And he's setting them up because in chapter 2, he's going to warn them that there are these false teachers who are coming who will prey upon them. And the faith that they teach is not like the faith of the apostles and the prophets. It is a fake faith. And so uh, he's building them up for this. They have received this uh, from God. God has determined this. God is in control of his revelation, and he provides it uh, to the church. It is called precious faith from the uh, Greek word isotimos, and uh, timos or time is a root for something of honor, of value. So it is an honorable faith. This is a uh, honor, time is considered a virtue in Greek culture, and so this is a, a, a an equally precious or valuable faith. It has uh, equal value, and so it is then described as the faith, meaning that which is believed, that body of truth that has been revealed to them. Although the language is different, we will see many more parallels, more specific, tighter parallels, with uh, the epistle to Jude, but even though the language is different, structured differently in Jude Jude verse 3, it's a very similar type of statement. Jude writes there, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation. And what he meant by that was that they agreed and understood on the, the gospel of salvation. And they trusted in Jesus Christ as their Savior, that he was the promised and prophesied Messiah, and that by believing in him and trusting in him alone, they would have eternal life. So they had a common salvation, and now Jude finds it necessary to write to challenge them, to encourage them, to exhort them, to contend earnestly for the faith. Now, the faith here seems to be parallel in context to that common salvation. So it's possible that the foundation, uh, the commonality here is that teaching which relates to salvation. It probably means more. We can't restrict it to only soteriological truth, only saving truth. I think it means more than that, because to understand the gospel, to understand saving truth, you have to understand who God is, theology proper. You have to understand who man is as a fallen sinner, corrupt and incapable of doing anything to produce his own righteousness, and that is anthropology, biblical anthropology. You have to know who Jesus Christ is, so that's biblical Christology, You have to understand all of the various facets of Christ's work on the cross, and that's biblical soteriology. And then you have to understand how that fits within the context of history, and that will bring in aspects of eschatology, bring in aspects of the relationship of the Jews and the church to one another in this dispensation, which is why Paul wrote uh, the epistle to the Ephesians. So it can't be reduced to simply simply gospel truth, simply soteriological uh, evangelism. It is more than that. It doesn't have to get uh, tremendously complex or detailed, but you can't say anything about salvation without touching on almost every other area of theology and of doctrine. So they are to contend or to fight or wrestle earnestly for the faith. We are to fight for truth. 
Now, we live in an era today when people don't want to fight for truth. If you are fighting for truth, if you believe there is one and only one truth, you are contentious. You are the one who's stirring up trouble. You are the one who is uh, causing all this division. You're divisive. That's the same. I've had that charge brought against me. I've, had the, I've seen that charge brought against all the great Bible teachers in history and against people from, from Abraham to Moses to Isaiah to Jeremiah. Isaiah was, according to tradition, split into, sawn in half by his relative, the king of Judah at the time. That makes you feel real welcome in your family. So he had to deal with those things. You get into the New Testament, and John's the only one, the God, uh, apostle of John is the only one who died a natural death. All of the others were, were uh, crucified or hung or had their heads cut off, or none of them died a natural death. They all were opposed by people. The gospel is divisive. That's why Jesus said, I, I came not to bring peace, but to bring a sword. The truth divides. And you have to decide, are you going to stand for the truth without exception and base your life on the truth and live for the truth? Because the time is coming in this nation where it is going to be important that you may have to give your life, your freedom, uh, to stand for the truth. This is happening today. We know of people, we know of situations where uh, people are being overtly persecuted, challenged, because they have taken stands, biblical stands on things like uh, homosexual marriage, uh, on stands related to uh, the death penalty, stands related to uh, issues of teaching the Bible in school or creation versus evolution, and they are opposed uh, virulently by people. I know of one case, and if you pay attention to our prayer prayer list that goes out, I'm not going to mention his name, but I know of one man who is a DA in Tennessee who's a brother-in-law of a pastor there, and because of some things he said here at the Chafer Conference a few years ago, he is being uh, opposed by a group of over 300 lawyers, in Tennessee, seeking to find information, to dig up information on him, to disbar him simply because he said that God does not recognize the legitimacy of homosexual marriage. This is a warning to all of us. The false teachers have gained control of the media. They are saying that God loves everybody, and therefore, if you want to engage in any kind of perversion then that's going to be okay with God because he loves you so much. And if you don't agree with them, then you are a hater. And they, they have no understanding about what Scripture teaches about grace, that homosexuality is a sin just like any other sin, that we are to, as believers, unfortunately there are too many legalistic believers that, that don't understand this either, that as believers we are to hate the sin but love the sinner that we are not to engage in hate toward any person or any group because of whatever sin they may commit. And so we are to exercise love, but we are to exercise discernment and live our lives on the basis of what God reveals and what is true. So we have to contend for the faith. We have to do it the right way and not the wrong way. Too many people contend for the faith in a contentious manner which is not honoring God and is not uh, according to grace. Jesus contended for the faith against the, against the uh, Pharisees and the Sadducees. He called them a brood of vipers. So identifying someone as being in error is not hateful. A brood of vipers, if you really parse out the language, it's just you're the seed of the serpent. And that means you're a follower of Satan. But to say that is to expose the truth of who someone is and what they believe. And it, should, and it wasn't said in a nasty manner. He didn't say it in a judgmental manner. He just said it in an objective manner. And that, that's who they were. But when you start identifying people in terms of their opposition to the Word of God, their reaction is going to be excessive and hostile. So we need to be prepared for it. 
but we are given the responsibility of Scripture to contend earnestly for the faith which was given once for all. That means it didn't change. It doesn't change because now that we live in a postmodern era that we can interpret it in a postmodern way any more than in a modern time, under modernism in the 18th and 19th century that it was okay to interpret the Bible according to modernism. We have to interpret the Bible according to how God has revealed it and the time-honored principles of literal, historical, grammatical interpretation. But as pastors especially, but anyone, if you're a Sunday school teacher, if you're a parent and you are taking seriously God's uh, God's commands to you as a parent to teach your children the Word of God, to raise them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. Nobody likes admonition anymore, so that immediately makes you hateful in today's world. But Paul warned the church leaders in Ephesus. When he stopped there, he had them come to Miletus near the coast to meet with him, and he warned them, and he said, Uh, Take heed to yourselves and to all the flock. And that meant to observe, to consider, to pay attention. Watch what people are believing. Teach them the truth in contrast to what the false teaching that they have bought into. So he says, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock. First of all, watch your own thinking. Develop discernment to make sure you're not slipping out of bounds by being influenced by fake teaching. And then pay attention to all the flock among whom God the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. That's a position of responsibility to make sure they're doing things right. And I take that seriously as a pastor. I think the primary way to do that is to teach the truth in the from the pulpit so that people can understand the contrast between truth and error. Sometimes it's necessary as a pastor that if you hear about people getting involved in certain things, that you do a little additional research and help them think through what some of the problems might be if they are involved in certain organizations, and at least to warn them so that they have their defenses up. Uh, We all get involved with different groups of people, but it's important that we understand what the issues are and that our our defenses are up and our radar is turned on so that we do not succumb to the influences of those that surround us. And that may especially occur among your peers at where you work. And uh, if you're in school, those with whom you go to school, your fac- faculty members, teachers that are teaching you false things, which is very common in university today, Often the university today is simply the uh, seminary for liberalism. And you send your children there at great risk. So the way to protect them is to teach them about these things from the time they are very, very young. If you wait until their senior year in high school to prepare them to go off to a secular university, you've waited too long. That is a recipe for disaster. They have to be prepared to think biblically within a biblical worldview and understand discernment from the time that they are old enough to form sentences. And it doesn't have to be at a deep, profound level, but they have to be have to be prepared. So Paul goes on to say that we are to shepherd the church of God. That's part of our role is to protect them from the uh, enemies that will come into their midst. In this passage, he describes these enemies as savage wolves. He says, verse 29, for I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. So again, he's doing the same thing that Peter is doing, warning that in a near future, there will be those that come in teaching fake theology and fake doctrine and leading people astray. It will destroy their spiritual life. It won't destroy their salvation, but it will thoroughly mess up their spiritual life, missing out on the blessings that God would have for them. Verse 30, also from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things. That is from those who at one time were not only saved, but they were solid in their doctrine, solid in their theology, But then as they mature, they 
go off course. And if I wanted to, I could sit down and just read a litany of people who have come out of churches that we are close to who now hold to a variety of aberrant doctrines and even in some cases heresy. And then they want to influence people into that. We've had even some people from this congregation who've left left and gone into Greek Orthodoxy, arguing that Greek Orthodoxy was uh, just as free grace as we are, which is a, a total lie, and have tried to convince those in this congregation to go with them. They were not successful. So we have to prepare people all the time for what will come their way. And Paul concluded by telling these elders, therefore watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. Constantly the teaching of the word involves warning against error. So we ought to ask this question, what is the body of what we believe? What, what is it? If you were to boil it down, what is this faith that we have received once for all? What If you wanted to boil it down into just some basics, what would that involve? That's always a good lesson. I remember several times in seminary, I remember going through an exercise like this when I did my pastoral internship. What, is, what are the essentials of our faith? Now, some people are going to really narrow down those essentials. For example, if you are a, an evangelical scholar and you want to join the Evangelical Theological Society, then you have to affirm two things. Now, they all believe that more th- other things are doctrinal and important and orthodox, but to, for all of them to come together, they only have two things you must believe. One is you must believe in the Trinity. You must believe in an orthodox view of the Trinity. The second is you must believe in the inerrancy and infallibility of Scripture. And in their other documents explaining this, they identified that what they mean by inerrancy is the definition that was arrived at through many of their members at the Chicago Council on Biblical Inerrancy. The sad thing is, in recent years, they don't hold people's feet to the fire on those things, and therefore, liberalism begins to seep into our scholarly organizations. It becomes acceptable, and then it seeps into the uh, lecterns at our seminaries and eventually into the pulpits of our, of our churches. So it's important you look at some other groups, and they may identify four or five things that must be believed, Uh, to be uh, uh, an evangelical, and then you have some like the um, uh, Barna Group, which is a sociological, Christian sociological group that does a lot of surveys, and they have nine points that they identify as essential to just be an evangelical. Now, that's a broader than what it would take maybe to uh, have as a basis of doctrine for a local church. We have a fairly refined doctrinal statement, and the reason is not that everybody in the congregation is expected to thoroughly understand that doctrinal statement, but that someday they will, but that those who teach in the church, those who will perhaps pastor in the future, will be held to that standard, and that they must agree with those things. Otherwise, that their teaching that will come will will shift the focus of the church. And I know of one church in Albuquerque where the pastor was fairly solid. The pastor was a dispensationalist, a traditional dispensationalist. He held to a free grace gospel. As he grew older, he had a young man in his church that went off to Dallas Theological Seminary, became mentored by uh, one of the people I don't think is so hot in the uh, New Testament department. Other people think he is, but I don't. I think he's led a lot of people astray. And now this young man came back and was assistant pastor for a number of years. The senior pastor finally retired, and they elevated this one pastor, new, this young guy, to the position of being a pastor. So he is slowly, gradually leading them into 
uh, areas of more contemporary worship. He's leading them into areas of progressive dispensationalism, breaking down the distinction between Israel and the church. And we have no idea where this is eventually going to end. I blame that on not having a very precise doctrinal statement. I know of another case here in Houston, Grace Bible Church, where David Dunn is the pastor. And I knew the man who founded that church. He was the man who ordained me. He was a very close friend, and he was very theologically solid in most areas, a little more Calvinistic than I would like, but but he was free grace. He was that anomaly of a free grace five-pointer. He was inconsistent, and I told him that many times. But when he founded that church, he did not give a very precise doctrinal statement. And so when uh, Pastor Dunn took over, he had problems because there were men in the church who, even though the, the doctrinal statement, I think, carefully was premillennial, but it didn't make a big issue out of it. He had people who were covenant, people who were amil, who were serving in the church in various ways, and when David became the pastor and started teaching a consistent free grace theology and began to teach a consistent pre-mill, pre-trib, traditional dispensationalism, then the fur flew. And there were lots of problems that he had to deal with over the next three or four years. It is important to have a solid, solid doctrinal statement. So that may be an exercise to assign just for your own uh, benefit to give you something to think about is what would you include as part of this body of truth that has been given to us by the apostles. Well, I'm going to show you my basic of basics. I think, first of all, the foundation must be God. We must start with God. A lot of people will start with something else, but we must start with God. Remember, I've taught you many times that we have this little pyramid I work with on knowledge. It comes out of uh, the issues and organization of of uh, topics in philosophy, but I think it's accurate. And the bottom line of everything is metaphysics. It's ultimate being. It is what does everything come derive from. So metaphysics is, in philosophical language, the counterpart to theology proper. Where did everything come from? Who created? And we always start with God because from Romans uh, 1, 18 through 22, we know that there is a, a, a legitimate witness in God's creation to his existence, and it is rejected by people. So not, the knowledge of God is not secondary, it is primary. Everybody knows that God exists, and many of them suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So the foundation of every faith is on some authority. And that's why you start with God. He is the ultimate authority. In Islam, the ultimate authority is, uh, is Allah. In other religions, it's maybe uh, experience or rationalism or mysticism or tradition. The foundation must be God and that God has spoken. The second, then, has to do with the authority of Scripture. If Scripture is not inerrant, and by inerrancy we don't talk about the text as you have it or as I have it. We're not talking about even my Greek or Hebrew Bible. We're not talking about your English translation. We're talking about that which was revealed by God to the apostles and which they wrote in the original manuscripts. Now, we don't have the original manuscripts. We probably have, a, as Dr. Ryrie used to say, we have 105% of the original manuscripts. There are textual variants. So in some places, a word got changed or a word was inserted. So that's what I mean. That, that's where the extra 5% comes from. So we have to use a textual criticism to determine just exactly what that original uh, was But that doesn't affect any doctrine about probably 90% of it or spelling changes or word order changes, things that are very, very minor. And very f- few cases does it ever af- affect some kind of doctrine. 
And then it becomes pretty easy by comparing Scripture with Scripture to exclude some of the options. But our authority is Scripture, 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17, says that all Scripture was breathed out by God. That tells us that its origin is in the mind of God, that God originated that which is described and revealed in Scripture. And he revealed it through human instruments, but because God is God and he's omnipotent, as my friend Pastor Hint says, that means that over 95% of the time he can do whatever he wants to do. They got a few people thinking. He can do what he wants to do. That means God has the power and the ability to oversee a process so that without disrupting the individual volition or personality or style or education of the writer, he can guarantee that the end result is exactly what he intended and is free from error because it comes from a God who is sinless and who is free from error. Therefore, it has authority. So we see that of the uh, proof text or the key text that support this in Scripture, we have 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, but also 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21. And it is no coincidence that one of the strongest passages defending the divine origin of the Scripture that we have is in this epistle that is designed to protect against false teaching. So we have to understand the authority comes from the Scripture because the fake teachers are going to come along and they're going to have another authority that they're appealing to. They will appeal to their own reason. They will appeal to some mystical insight. They will appeal to experience rather than the Word of God. And they will reject apostolic claims. So we have these passages that we should learn. And then here I'm going to give a a definition of inspiration. Inspiration is that God the Holy Spirit so supernaturally directed the human writers of Scripture that without waiving their human intelligence, their vocabulary, their individuality, their literary style, their personality, their personal feelings, or any other human factor. Now, I could take a lot of time just talking about that. But I remember, this isn't the exact definition that Dr. Ryrie gave us, but I remember in the first semester of seminary, we had as part of one course, bibliology, which is what the Bible teaches about the Bible. And Dr. Ryrie taught that course, and he would take his definition, which was very close to this one, and he would break it down. He spent probably 15 minutes just talking about what it meant for God to uh, supernaturally direct the human writers of Scripture, but he used the word that God supernaturally superintended the Scriptures. Now, that's a good word, but it's not that user-friendly for most people, so I changed it to just supernaturally directed Uh, the people, uh, the writers of Scripture. And he doesn't override their individuality, but he is able to control it in such a way that they will write in their own vocabulary, their own style. And we talked about that in our study of both First and Second Peter, that the style's different between the two. But that doesn't mean that Peter could not have written them. There are many writers who have different styles according to their subject, according to their uh, age, according to other human factors. So we have his complete and coherent message to mankind. It's complete. That means nothing is added to it. That excludes the Quran. That excludes the Book of Mormon. It means that the Bible is sufficient. God has told us everything we need to know. He may not have told us everything you want to know, or everything I want to know, I want to know how big that serpent was in the garden. I want to know how that serpent spoke. I want to know so many other things, but God has not gone into those details, but we'll get those questions answered at some point in heaven. 
It's a complete message. Nobody's going to come along and give more. You don't have to wait until uh, Freud comes along to discover psychology and that somehow psychology and psychotropic medications will, will be better than the Holy Spirit. There are a lot of people who have done that. Now, I'm not saying that there's not a role in certain circumstances for medication, but medication is not a replacement and is not designed to be a substitute for the Holy Spirit. If you go back in church history and you have to dig some and read a lot of biographies, you will discover that Christians, great Christians, great theologians, great men and women of God struggled mightily with circumstances, with emotion, with depression, and it drove them to be even closer to the Lord and to rely more on Scripture and to delve into the Scripture to find the solutions to life's problems rather than relying on some uh, quick fix uh, therapy or, or, uh, or drugs or something of that nature. So we believe that God's revealed will is complete. It's coherent. It's understandable. God created your brain. He created your vocal cords. He created language. He had language from before the creation of any creature. In the beginning was the Word. There's communication, language between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so God, who is omniscient and omnipotent, is able to create a creature who can understand what he is saying. You have a lot of people who say, well, I just can't understand the Bible. Well, that's because you haven't tried, or as an unbeliever, it's spiritually incoherent to you, but that doesn't mean that God did not reveal himself clearly. The problem isn't God. The problem is what's between your ears, and it takes time. God revealed things the way he did so that it would force us to think deeply, profoundly about things. There are things that that you know I struggle with. Jim's here, he struggles with, others struggle. We have to think about these things. God wants us to think about his word. Why has he said what he said? Why is it this way and not some other way? Why did he use this word and not some other word? And it forces us to think about it, but it's coherent. So we can understand it and apply it. And it's given to mankind, and it was recorded with perfect accuracy in the original languages of Scripture, in the original writings of the apostles, and that the very words bear the authority of divine authorship. When God speaks, nobody in the Scripture who heard God speak said, Excuse me, who are you again? They immediately knew God was speaking to them. The Word of God resonates with the divine authority behind it, those who reject it are suppressing truth in unrighteousness. We use terms like verbal. The very words of Scripture are inspired. God just didn't inspire the ideas. He inspired the words. So that if you have one word in a verse and you have another synonym in another verse, there is a reason for it, and it takes time maybe to work out why there are those distinctions. Every word is inspired, not only the individual words, but the forms of the words. Words are very important, so we have to determine those word meanings. We also use a term called plenary. That means every word is equally inspired. The articles or the lack of articles. We have a, a verse here where we have the word faith, pistis, without the article. In a parallel passage in Jude, it has the article. And there's reasons for that because Jude is emphasizing the, saying something specific about the faith, whereas Peter is emphasizing the quality of the faith. It's in the, you see it in the overall context as opposed to the lack of quality in the teaching of the fake teachers. So every word is equally inspired. It's not just the spiritual words. It's not just the words that talk about redemption and justification and propitiation and reconciliation, but it is all of the other words that describe the origin of the creation, that describe 
the laws in the Mosaic law that describe how God created mankind, male and female, in his image and likeness. All of those are very important and equally inspired with the phrases related to the gospel. Other words that we use are that the scripture is infallible, it is inerrant. Infallible means that it has authority. The Word of God has authority. I remember when I was a kid, even up to college in many circles, that if you were debating something and you said, well, the Bible says, people would stop and listen because they had at least a vague respect for what the Bible taught. It had a level of authority. Now you say the Bible says, and somebody accuses you of being some homophobic radical, and that you just hold to this superstition, and very few people have any respect. Even among Christians, they're not as concerned about what the Bible says. So every word is infallible. It is inerrant, that is, that no error existed in the original writings or autographs of Scripture. And today we have people who say, well, I believe in limited inerrancy. What does that mean, limited inerrancy? If it's limited, then all of Scripture is not inerrant. That's what inerrancy teaches, is that all of Scripture is inerrant. So we believe in the power of Scripture. Jesus said, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter in the Originally, he said a yud. A yud is a Hebrew letter that is like a, about the size of an apostrophe. Very small. Not the smallest letter or stroke. That's the, in the original, that's the tittle. A tittle is like what makes the difference between a capital B and a capital R. That little stroke at the bottom that connects the leg of the R back to the vertical uh, line on the left, that's a tittle. It's just a part, but we'll see some examples here. It makes a big difference. For example, the difference between the word hit and the word bit is a tittle. Now, if you say some kid comes along and says, well, Billy hit me, that's completely different from saying Billy bit me. So that little tittle is very important in understanding the word. Now, if you want to have oatmeal, but you lose the tittle, you're going to have cat meal. I don't think that would be as tasty for breakfast. You can have fun with puns, but you can't have a pun with a fun. Okay, see, you have to have that tittle there in the right place and right order to have things. But fun, pun, run, bun are all similar. The only difference is the tittle. So this is in Hebrew. You have these two letters down here. This letter on the left is a yud. This is like an apostrophe. I've had it blown up so it looks a little bigger than it does in an actual Hebrew text. And this here is the letter chet. And it has no opening here, and somehow in the wonderful world of upgrading uh, these programs, I had the circle moved, but now you can see that there's an opening here in this letter, and that is the letter hey. It's just that little difference. That's the difference between the name of the prostitute in Joshua 2, Rahav, and the name of the monster mentioned in 2 Samuel, I mean, uh, excuse me, Psalm 89.10, Rahav. It's just that little bitty tittle makes a big difference. So, But unfortunately, they're transliterated into English the same way, so people think that they're talking about the same person. And I've had a number of emails and comments from people who said, I'm so glad we're doing this study on Tuesday night. I have had trouble all my life understanding how this lady in Joshua 2 could be the enemy of God. It just doesn't make sense. So now now you know the rest of the story. 
So in 2 Timothy 3.15-17, through 17, uh, 3.15, Paul reminded Timothy that he had known the sacred writings from his childhood. Now, those sacred, sacred writings are referred to as Scripture in verse 16, that all Scripture. So when Paul wrote, all Scripture is breathed out by God, he's not talking about the New Testament per se. He's talking about Genesis through Malachi in our English Bibles. He's saying that Genesis 1 through 11 was breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, that the man of God, that is, that the believer may be thoroughly equipped for every good work, not just some. You don't need the Bible plus something else. You need the Bible. And 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21, because we know this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. Now, what he means there is that, that it's not an individual who has invented this. They're not the ones who have come up with this verse or this statement. It wasn't private. It came from God. That's what's clear in the next verse, for prophecy never came by the will of man. But holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So we'll come back and that's just the first two areas that we should be concerned with in having a sound faith that is once for all delivered to the saints. And we'll come back and look at the rest of these next Thursday night. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to be reminded that we must be strong in our knowledge of your word, that we must not be taken in by fake teaching and fake teachers and that you will help us to understand these things because we have God the Holy Spirit uh, indwelling us and filling us and helping us to understand your word as it is being taught. Father, we pray that you would uh, challenge us with what we've learned and that we would go home thinking that we really do need to know a lot more about God's word than we thought was acceptable and that we would be, uh, that it would push us Uh, to a greater devotion to you and service to you. In Christ's name, amen.